is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we conclude our conversation with club member and former F1 driver Mike Wilds as he shares stories from life within Formula One and later Group C racing for a curious cost. Plus, Tom Robinson has the first instalment of his race preparation diary as he gets ready for the JEC racing season ahead. JECpodcast.com Hello, hope you're keeping well. It's great to have you back on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast for another episode. Uh, just a quick note before we get cracking to let you know about some introductory prices for genuine Jaguar clothing. Top quality OEM stuff, this, uh, with some very low introductory prices for the new range that's now available for a limited time only, and it's really lovely quality stuff, actually. I particularly like the leather jacket with the Jaguar Heritage logo embossed in it. Nice, I might have one of them myself. Uh, take a look at it for yourself. It's all at jc.org.uk. Just click the menu option for shop, and you'll see the option for official Jaguar clothing on there. And there's a brand new range to discover. Also, don't forget that we need your votes for the ongoing virtual Jaguar Festival, Concours de Elegance. We've got confirmed prizes now for the top three cars, as chosen by you. They're going to be winning an exclusive Meguiar's car care detailing kit, thanks to club partners Meguiar's, who have kindly donated those prizes for the top three. But who's going to win it? Well, it's all down to you, so get voting now via jcpodcast.com. Just click on the virtual festival and follow the links to the concourse voting form. And make sure you have a good look through all of the cars that are on offer there. It's not a photography competition by any stretch of the imagination. Just pick your favourite car and vote for it on the form. First up on this week's episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I caught up with Richard West as part of our ongoing series, Richard Remembers. Each podcast, Richard West shares with us his memories from a lifetime in motorsport. And this week I caught up with him to chat about his thoughts on the first COVID-19 restricted F1 race in Austria and how when he was in Formula One, preparations were made for a typical race day. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. A historic occasion happened with the Formula One last weekend. First time ever, I think, that Austria has hosted the opening Grand Prix of the season, but definitely the first time a Formula One race has ever been held without an audience and without spectators there. Firstly, uh, Richard West, what did you think of the Austrian Grand Prix in this COVID year? What were your feelings watching the race? Yeah, it was a strange one, Wayne, wasn't it? Because <laughs> whether it's sports car racing, BTCC or Formula One, the one thing, and sadly in the past perhaps we've taken it too much for granted, is that you always have a big crowd. And there we were, you know, with all of this machinery in... Um, a paddock area that actually was almost like a tented village as opposed to all the multi-billion pound sort of rollout of motorhomes and transporters. And it all looked a little bit strange. I think it, it, it is peculiar because clearly the teams had gone there. They'd gone there under great consideration by the FIA, Liberty Media, under Ross Braun's stewardship and everybody else. And they were doing a very, very good job of obviously getting the series back into the public eye. And I think also some of the camera angles were very cleverly done. But of course, 
it's like so many things, a bit like, you know, the cricket that's being about to be played with no crowds and the soccer that's being played with no crowds. It's a very strange thing. And I was thinking about it yesterday. That's not the way it is. I'm sure if you're involved in a team, clearly you've got a busy weekend and there's probably media requirements there. But in terms of all the things like looking after sponsors and doing driver appearances and all those other things, None of that existed at the weekend, which must have been very strange indeed. Talk us through a typical race day then from a point of view of someone who has managed the media and the PR for a race team. How do you prepare when you get up on that Sunday morning and how does the race day pan out? Because you've got a relatively small window of time there in which to squeeze in an awful lot of stuff, haven't you? Yes, you have indeed, Wayne. And in fact, it's not just the race day. I mean, when I... Uh, when I first started as a sponsorship coordinator, the role there was to collect in all of the requirements that the sponsors had of the team management, the senior management, the drivers, in terms of endorsements, appearances, meeting and greeting. And of course, that had to be tied in with the media department at the same time to ensure that you left the drivers a, a very large amount of time to spend with the engineers in terms of planning their competitiveness and improving the car and the team during the course of the weekend. But by the time you actually get to race morning, if I look back over a Grand Prix, for example, or a sports car typical weekend, we would really start our events from the Wednesday stroke Thursday nights onwards. We would perhaps have a cocktail party. There would be prize winners and junior managers and local representatives of that race weekend in town. On the Friday stroke Saturday, the importance of the guests uh, actually increases because You may have your prize winners on the Friday. On the Saturday, you end up with middle management and some of their customers. And on Sunday, race day, of course, be it a Grand Prix or be it a sports car race or even a BTCC round in the British Touring Cars, you end up with what we used to call the big cheeses. You get all the serious movers and shakers in town. And literally, you you get up very early that morning. You've already pre-agreed the schedule with your drivers. Depending on how their practice and qualifying has gone, of course, they may may need more time with their engineers, their aerodynamicists, and their tyre specialists. So you really do have this incredibly short window, as you say, from about 9.30 through, in a typical Grand Prix weekend, until about 11.30, 11.45. And you have to be very, um, I suppose, very considerate of the drivers because as the years have increased, and particularly now, setting up these cars, be it a sports car or a Formula 1 racing car, is an extremely technical process. And as Martin Brundle said a while ago in his interview, there's so much data now available to the engineers and the drivers. The engineers are able to see if the driver's lifted off the throttle a fraction early or maybe braked a little bit late or a little bit too soon. And you really do have to gauge the mood of the drivers at that point because quite clearly you've also got to let them focus in on the task ahead. And that's not always an easy thing to do. And sometimes words take place behind closed doors and you, as the marketing guy or as the sponsorship person or as the media person, you maybe have to move a few things around to accommodate that and fill in in a seamless way so that the guests on the day and the sponsor's representatives really don't know any difference. They're just there having a great time 
and enjoying themselves whilst you get on with the job of trying to win that particular race. And of course you have to also have a contingency in case something doesn't go to plan during the race and the one thing that always trips up all media schedules is a major crash or an incident on track isn't it? How do you manage to cope and balance all of that? Yeah it's a good one actually that you call upon although it's a very long time ago in the 88 season when I was with McLaren of course and we were all dominant we had this wonderful position whereby we'd taken a ship called the sea goddess not a boat or a yacht we we chartered a ship and we had about 140 people on board her on race day we'd qualified on pole and second place uh, for the monaco grand prix prost and senna you know had spent a great deal of time uh, with their engineers it was this infamous weekend when Ayrton had just gone quicker and quicker and quicker and there we all were on the sea goddess too and uh, the drivers were you know, running one and two in the race. And on the live television commentary, as Ayrton came down to enter the tunnel, he slid wide, hit the barrier, got out of the car and just disappeared. <laughs> and although we won the Grand Prix with Prost, of course, all weekend with the guests, we'd built up to this. What we were going to do is if we finished one and two, we would come back on board the ship and we would do a post-race. Thank you very much for everybody for attending and a cocktail party. And Although we won the Grand Prix, it was a very, very public retirement, and it affected Ayrton greatly. He he went back to his apartment, and I don't think anybody saw hiding the hair of him for a couple of three days. He was so upset with himself for having crashed on that particular corner. But, of course, what you've got to do in that position as being the sponsorship individual or the media person, you've got to put a credible case across, and you know because you've dealt with the media now for many years as well yourself, you can't make up some nefarious story about what's actually gone on you've got to report the facts you've got to then put a positive spin on that and you've got to look forward to the next weekend fortunately as i say in 88 we did still win the grand prix but it took a lot of explaining as to why the pole sitter and the race leader and the best man in the pack really ended up in the barriers a long time ago I'm pretty sure that nowadays in the modern Formula One world, they don't have to, as a PR person, go into nightclubs and drag their drivers out quite as much as they used to have to do. Uh, <laughs> different uh, different sport now. But um, going back to the, the Formula One season this year and having seen Austria and the way that played out, do you think this season can still be a success? Do you think Formula One can survive this, having seen that? Oh, I certainly think it can survive it, yes. I think, you know, Formula One is, is much, much bigger than than just you know the fact that currently it doesn't have a crowd clearly there are some challenges there um there's been you know various talk of well an open talk of williams looking for third-party investment we've had this um mclaren have you know had this large financial loan put to them to enable them to continue to run the business successfully and i think it's like every other business at the moment it's extremely testing but i think if we can get good racing uh, in any formula currently of some of the formulas that are coming back under very tight conditions and we can get good media coverage good television coverage it's like all things i think people are you know feeling a little bit starved i think it's a bit extreme in light of the tragedies that have occurred but people want to see and hear their sports and i think if the bodies that control those sports can continue to do a good job and be socially responsible it's all part of the new normal and frankly to turn on the tv a Grand Prix start, watch people doing what they do, for me was, was very exciting and it was great to see it once more. Well as Formula One gets started, of course our own race series gets started as well here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and Tom Robinson has been preparing his car in readiness for it and with his motorsport preparation diary, Tom's next. 
listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge with the Jaguar model experts. Well, racing is finally back. Um, we've had confirmation from the Classic Sports Car Club and also the JEC Racing that we will be competing at Fruxton on the 25th of July. Um, so unfortunately, this is actually where we finished up last season. Um, it was our, actually our, our last round. We had one more at Donington, which unfortunately we couldn't um, compete in due to an engine failure that we had at Fruxton. Now, this unfortunately was caused by a spin that we had at Church, which is one of the faster corners of the circuit. Um, which caused um, some oil surge which unfortunately damaged one of the main engine bearings so um, as most of the bits are, are custom made on the XJR we unfortunately couldn't get any of the the parts in time for the final round at Donington so we fully rebuilt the engine um, we've had to put in uh, new pistons main bearings crank um, the actual block itself had to have new liners because of the amount of damage it was caused by all starvation. So as you can imagine, it, it went through the, the complete bottom end of the vehicle. So as you can probably hear, I'm actually in the van with uh, the XJR6 on the trailer behind me. And we're heading down to PV Engineering over at Chard, which is um, the chassis diner that we use. Um, and today we're going to get the vehicle on the rollers. First things first, we're actually going to run the brand new engine in. So um, that will take a couple of hours. We'll run it up to temperature keep it at a low RPM under very light load just to, to bed everything back into um, being obviously new materials and everything new bearings uh, we'll then unload it from the dyno uh, we'll change all of the oil on the system there and uh, we'll then check if there's any metal filings in any of the oil or any deposits just to make sure absolutely everything is as it should be with so much being changed now we have carried out quite a substantial amount of modifications um, since last year so we'll be able to test these on the dyno by data logging and checking all the sensors. We can also check the actual map and the ignition timing and all of the fueling. Obviously the biggest modification we carried out was to the oil system. We were obviously getting oil surge um, which unfortunately can cause major engine damage and did cause major en engine damage shall I say. Um, so. The, we are restricted to run the wet systems um, in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Racing, so we're not allowed to run any sort of dry sump systems. So we use the standard XJR6 oil pump and pickups, etc. So um, just to hopefully eradicate these issues is what we've decided to do is we've actually um, added in baffles. The XJR6 sump is baffled from factory and actually does have a very good pickup. Um, so we haven't experienced any issues with this before. So. So what we've done is basically improved on what is already a very good system by adding in some um, baffles and also adding in some gates just to slow the oil transfer around the oil pickup and just to make sure there's always a good quantity of oil there around the oil pump to pick up. Now one of the other things we've done to your system is we've also added increased oil coolers. Um, they're a lot bigger capacity than what we ran last season so the system can hold more oil than it would do normally. We've also added an extra um, of what they call an AccuSump. Now, this tees into your actual oil system, and the easiest way to explain it is, is a long syringical tube. Um, this has a, a piston inside that tube, and is what happens is it actually has a gate on it. You open that when you first fire the car up, so it has oil pressure, and then you then lock the pressure into that cylinder. Now, that will store your engine's oil pressure and also about a litre of oil. So if the engine does dip below oil pressure, or 
it's suspected oil pressure the valve will automatically open and force about a litre of oil into the system just to avoid any further engine damage so that's kind of just an added safety barrier really just to make sure that um, we don't have the same problem of running into any engine damage um, we're just going to strap the car onto the dyno now um, we'll run it in to obviously change the oil and check for any further issues we'll then data log all of the sensors and uh, I'll run through with you some of the data shortly well Tom will be back next week with the results of that dyno test will he have improved the power over last season will the engine have blown up we'll find out on the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast you're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk Now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I continue my chat with former Formula One driver Mike Wilds. We pick up the story at the point where Mike has just joined Formula One and he discusses his route to driving for Ecuria Coss in Group C and also sharing a Nissan at Le Mans with Wynne Percy and how, borrowing a helicopter managed to get him the paycheck he'd always dreamt of. You now find yourself in Formula One. How did that come about and how did that feel? Was that intimidating for you when you arrived? It was a, a step between the Formula Three. I did Formula Three for two years. I came third in one of the British Formula Three championships and I think I finished finished sixth in Europe. But there were hundreds of Formula Three racing drivers at that time it was very competitive there was the Jacques Lafitte's and Tony Brizey and Taylor's of this world who were very very quick so it was very competitive um, I wanted to go Formula 2 and Dempster said okay we'll do a budget and uh, let's see where we go but when I presented it there was only two races in this country the rest were all over Europe they wanted to race more in the UK and uh, it the only option for me really was to go into Formula 5000, which I thought, although it wasn't as good a step from Formula 2 to Formula 1, it was still 500 brake horsepower, big mm. Chevy in the back. It, uh, so I'd finished 1973 racing a Formula 3 March with a bit of work support. And uh, I wanted to buy a Lola because I thought the, um, the 332 was going to be the most competitive car but um, Max Mosey got hold of Dempster Developers and said oh you've got to have a Formula One March and uh, we'll put a Chevrolet in the back of it and so on so that's what we did Colin Bennett my mechanic did all the work to put a Chevy in the back of it and it was a beast I mean a real beast and that I learned a lot in that car going from 130 140 brake horsepower Formula 3 to 500 brake horsepower um, was a was a massive jump but I took to it it appears the more power I have the better I like it um, so I did my first Formula 5000 race on the Grand Prix circuit at Brands Hatch and um, after an indifferent qualifying I decided to overtake everybody and I had a massive dice with one of my heroes uh, Brian Redmond uh, who was in a Lola and again I learned so much in that race Peter Gethin won it I came second and Brian Redmond came third and I was over the moon and after three or four rounds of that I was leaving the European Championship 
and then sadly had a crash at Thruxton, which broke my wrist. And it was after a phone call from Max Mosley during the week. It was in May. And Hans Stuck, who was the works March F1 driver at the time, had a crash at Monaco and broke his wrist. So Mosley phoned me and said, Swedish Grand Prix in two weeks' time, would you stand in for Hans Stuck? Took me a millisecond to say yes, please. But I had this European Formula 5000 championship race at Thruxton the the weekend between. And I was obviously very keen to try and win that championship if I could. Mm. And again, it was very competitive with all these David Hobbs and Bob Evans, Brian Redman, so on, Peter Gethin, Teddy Paulette. It was a great series. So we went to Thruxton. I was lapping somebody uh, running in the top three. Uh, oh, it was Tony Dean. And as we came up towards the chicane, for some reason, as I went past him, he moved over and hit my back wheel. And about 180 miles an hour, I was spinning and hit the barrier, but didn't take my hands off the wheel steering wheel quick enough and broke my left wrist. So I, <laughs> Ryan Wiesel drove the car uh, in the Swedish Grand Prix. So I missed my first opportunity. Mm. Um, the broken wrist put me out for a while. So I, I couldn't have a chance of winning the 5,000 championship. Uh, so Mo Nunn offered me a seat at Team Ensign once I was fit again. I did a few more 5,000 races and then started to drive his Ensign Formula One, which Vern Schupen had left um, because of problems. And I understand what the problems were now. Um, every time we used to turn the... Uh, Ensign left, it lost fuel pressure. And to try and get onto the grid of a Formula One race at that time was was difficult. There was always about 30 cars for 25 places. So I tried at Brands Hatch, tried at um, Monza, Austria and Canada. I was really at the point of giving up because to non-qualify all the time was soul-destroying. Mo, bless his heart, Mo Nunn, who I got on really well with... um, decided he would totally redesign the fuel system of the car between Canada and the American Grand Prix. We got to America and it just shows the sort of mindset you can get into. There, I was sitting in the pit lane in the ensign, looking down at the first corner and there was a grandstand on the left-hand side and I thought, great place to watch the race from. And I suddenly realized the mind, I, I was already, I wasn't not going to get in the American Grand Prix. And it really fired me up. And um, I qualified 22nd out of 30 cars. Um, people like uh, Hans Stuck in the Works March didn't qualify. Tim Schenken in the Works Lotus didn't qualify. And there I was, I wasn't last. And I was only 0.3 of a second off a lap time of my hero, Ronnie Peterson. And when I sat on the grid and looked across at Ronnie in Lotus uh, 72, JPS Lotus 72, chassis number six. I mean, if I was frightened, not frightened, but nervous before my first ever race, my God, I was nervous (laughs) sitting on the grid of a Grand Prix for the first time. But it was the achievement, total achievement of what I've been fighting for since 1960, the end of 1964. Well, you mentioned one of your heroes there, Jody Schechter. Take us to the US Grand Prix in 1974, 
and tell us the story of what went on between you and he. I was really fired up in qualifying after pulling myself out of this mindset. Um, Jody was uh, driving for Tyrrell and was very competitive, was much further up the grid than I was, even though his lap time was probably under two seconds faster than I was going. Okay, that's a different world, but um, I was driving an ensign. And I started a qualifying lap, and I looked in the mirror as I came out of the top of the first series of corners where, sadly, Francois Sedo was killed the year before. It was a flat-out uphill S's. And I looked in the mirror, and Jody was right on my tail. And I, and I thought, I've just done this absolutely flat. I, this will be a good lap. All the way around that lap, I looked in the mirror, and Jody was there all the way around. Anyway, I've got, I finished the lap, and it was the best time I'd done so far, and it qualified me for the grid. Jody had a reputation of being very aggressive. So much so that at that time, there was a book, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And it was a, a book about a colony of seagulls and all their different uh, characters. And there was a very aggressive seagull and the, his name was Fletcher. So when you walk around the paddock, if you said to John Watson or, James Hunt, have you seen Fletcher? They knew who you meant. And, oh yeah, Fletcher's over there. Or, so, but we never called it to his face. So I'm getting changed after the qualifying session. Ken Tyrrell came up to me and said, oh Mike, uh, Jody's looking for you. Oh really? Okay, I bet I know what he wants to talk to me about because I possibly held him up on that one lap. So I went down to find him and I was, I'm, I'm on this grid by, you know, I drove my Watsits off. I deserve to be on this grid. I'm not going to take any ball from anybody. So I got my finger ready and he was talking to somebody and I waited and I went up to him and I said, Jody, and he said, yes. And I poked my finger in his chest. I said, are you looking for me expecting him to give me this huge rollicking about holding you up. He sort of looked a bit aghast and said, oh no, uh, whoa. He said, I just wanted to make, just say how well you were driving that old ensign. And it, <laughs> it was very nice to have a compliment from Jody about how I was driving that car. The dice I had in the race was with Chris Amon in the BRM. My luck was not really going with me at that time because at the start of the race, even though Mo had redesigned this fuel system, which was great, I didn't have any loss of fuel pressure in left-hand corners. As the guy was raising the flag, the Cosworth V8 DFE had a, a fuel pressure relief valve. And it's probably a 50-pound part on a several hundred thousand pound racing car. Um, and it decided to pack up, so I lost fuel pressure. So I did the whole first lap with 40 pounds of fuel pressure instead of 120, so the engine wouldn't rev. And I chugged all the way around to the pits, and I sat there for probably six laps. I wasn't going to be classified because I'd lost so much time, but Mo said, off you go. So I went out, tagged on to Chris Amon in the BRM, and we overtook each other, and, and I, I had a wonderful time and, f and finished the race, albeit 
um, in about 13th place and unclassified, sadly. But that led on to the possibility of driving for BRM in 1975. Of course, you you also continued Formula 2 after that as well, didn't you? And you actually won the class in uh, in 1978, I think it was. Um, you must have been really chuffed to have taken that trophy home. Formula 2 are proper, proper little racing cars. Um, I drove for, after a, a, a terrible time with BRM in Argentina and Brazil, um, Again, I was going around trying to scrounge drives in whatever I could. And Graham very kindly let me race his Formula 2 Rolt. It was an RT1 with a Cosworth BDG in the back. Um, and it was fabulous to, to drive a, a little single-seater, but with about 300 horsepower, very revvy, proper little racing car. Um, yeah, and to, okay, it was only a national championship but it was still still nice to win it if somebody's going to win it uh, i'm glad it was me interesting hearing you talking just earlier on there about uh, f5000 and those massive thumping great v8s those cars had i actually had the pleasure of seeing albeit in freezing cold conditions it was like minus four that day for the full grid of them at goodwood members meeting with brian redmond there sadly they didn't run quite to the, the way we would have liked because it was all salt on the track and snow and everything else but incredible it was the first time i'd ever seen those cars in the flesh all lined up and revving and just unbelievable noise and power i wonder though if that held you in really good stead for what your next move eventually would be and that was going into sports cars was that a good sort of backing to that i think yes very much so i think um if you drive a car like a formula 5000 where you have um, a lot more power than grip available um it teaches you a lot about balance um car control and so on um power can also get you out of a lot of trouble um so it was invaluable, really. I was lucky enough to to drive in Thunder Sports, where I drove a lot of Can-Am cars. Um, so Lola T530 central seat Can-Am cars and so on. But I had a call one day from a very good friend of mine who I raced against over the years called Ray Malik. And Ray had been contacted by Ikuria Kos, who have fantastic Jaguar history. Ray asked me if I would consider doing the World Sports Car Championship in the new Acos that he was building with a DFL Cosworth V8 in it. And I drove for them for uh, four years, from 1984 to 1987. And in 1986, we won the World Sports Car Championship in C2, the team championship, and drove with Wynne Percy. Uh, Wynne drove with me in the Acos occasionally. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was the first time I'd really got into endurance racing. So we were doing 1,000K races, which took about six hours, and doing Le Mans 24-hour races. Um, I love driving with another driver, working together to achieve a result. I find that fascinating that we compromise a little on car setup, even on seat pedal positions and so on and we all pull together to achieve a result and i love sitting in a, a car for two hours and a group c car 50 odd degrees centigrade inside we didn't have 
cool suits in those days or drinks. We just got in and, and drove them. Um, and even the little Lacoste at Le Mans, we were doing 215 miles an hour with that little car. They were proper. And at some circuits, the Group C1s were faster than Formula One cars. Um, so I, I really enjoyed Group C and I'm chuffed a bit. So I'm going to drive one this year, even at my tender age. Oh, fantastic. Well, I do have a photograph here, which um, you haven't seen yet, uh, but I will send it to you uh, that uh, Mike Haller sent me that he took. And it's basically a, a picture of a box. And uh, for those of you listening to this podcast, we'll also be on the, the podcast page at jcpodcast.com. So you can go and have a look at it for yourself. Uh, there's a picture of a very a young man sat at a bar, but this second picture is of a box of what is left of a Group C car and a message on it from Spa. Tell us the story of that particular incident. Yes, that was, uh, I was driving with a Belgian um, called Mark Douai, very, very quick driver. He and I drove together in, uh, for a year in the World Championship. Um, it was deemed that I would, I was going to do the start of the race. So it was deemed that I would do the warm up. Now, as a lot of people will know, the complex of, Eau Rouge and Radillon is a very, very quick corner. I came down to uh, Eau Rouge, took the first part of Eau Rouge perfectly well. As I, as I got to the top, somebody had blown an engine and it was just oil. And I hit the oil at around 130 miles an hour or more and I went backwards into the wall on the outside of Radillon and absolutely destroyed the car and did myself a lot of no good in the neck department. We didn't have um, hands devices and so on. So I hurt my neck and uh, the mechanics worked their butts off to rebuild this whole car in about three hours uh, to get me uh, or to get us in, into the race. Uh, Mark then had to do the start because I was still in the hospital um, having, getting sorted out. So he did the first two hours, bless him. Uh, and then I got in the car in a lot of pain and did the next two hours and then Mark finished the race for us. Well, the uh, the box, for those of you who uh, go and check out the picture, says it's, it's basically a, a pile of bent bits and simply taped to the front of this aluminium box, it says, for sale, a Curiacost C2 unfinished project. <laughs> I guess that's that's another aspect of endurance racing you do have a much closer bond with the mechanics and the wider team don't you formula one and single seats you're very insular it's you the car uh, yeah i always got on with my mechanics i wanted to know what was going on and um but with endurance racing it throws everything at everybody there's mm. so much uh work that has to be done with a curious, it was always done with a smile on the face, even in adversity. You know, we had some really, really tough times, but people would smile, work hard, and we all had this common goal that we we wanted to succeed with the car. Uh, and away from the racetrack, we, we had some fantastic times. We had some great parties and. Uh, I remember the first world championship race we won, which was at Silverstone, I think in 1985. Uh, I think it was 85. Ray, Malik and I won the class at the thousand Ks and to stand up there and hear the national anthem was brilliant. And the boss, Hugh McCaig, 
uh, of the of the team of Akira Kost took over a restaurant in Toaster, a Chinese restaurant, and the whole team went there and we parted. It was just wonderful. Uh, it was a, a brilliant time of my life. And you mentioned working with other drivers and forming that part of that team. You went on, of course, to work with uh, the interviewee that we had on episode one of the JC podcast all those weeks ago, Win Percy, and you drove with him in 1988 at Le Mans, didn't you? They must be great memories. Uh, it was. Um, I sadly, Curiocos moved on after the, my fourth year with them. They went the Group C1 route. And um, with David Leslie, quite rightly, he was a, a superstar. David was a wonderful driver. And so I was looking for a drive and um, I was contacted by Nissan. And I was struggling a little bit. And when they asked me to go for a meeting with the boss, Howard Marsden of um, Nissan Europe, I thought I have to set a level. Part of the story of when I was trying to be a racing driver, I thought I ought to have a second profession. Because if I can't race, I now have two children and a mortgage. I need to earn money. So my other passion is flying, flying helicopters. So I became a helicopter pilot, uh, helicopter instructor. I wanted to try and set a level when I was going to have this meeting with Nissan. I didn't really have an amazing amount of money. I asked Wynn how much he was getting paid to drive racing cars for Nissan and he said it was X thousands of pounds per race and I thought well if I ask for that they're going to say oh no get something a bit less than that so I needed to set a level so I borrowed somebody's helicopter and they said oh could you come to a meeting at Milton Keynes at our depot I said I'm so busy I'm really sorry I can't get to uh, uh, I have this meeting up north but I could fly into Cranfield, which is very close to your headquarters. Could we have the meeting there and I could jump back in the helicopter and go to my next meeting, which I didn't have, another meeting. So I landed in this helicopter and I just thought, well, that's sort of setting a level that I don't drive around in a rusty Mini, which I actually had in the car park back at the airport. Um, so we went in and had this meeting and I doubled what when was being paid lesson and they just said yeah that's fine now what we want to do and i thought why didn't i treble it <laughs> <laughs> so so i bless bless poor old when i was getting paid twice as much as he was uh, for that race um which was was quite funny but i, I love winter bits he he a very 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 underrated driver and uh, i know tom walkinshaw held him in great esteem and uh, so much so after his crash in 1987 at Le Mans Tom wouldn't put him back in the car hence he was driving for Nissan at Le Mans um, and it was a pleasure for me to uh, to be uh, a co-driver with him. Well, of course, you can listen to our interview with Wyn Percy on episode one and two of the JEC podcast. And uh, it's a really good listen, actually. Some uh, fantastic stories from the early days of Tom Walkinshaw racing there. Your career continued on from this point, Mike, didn't it? Because you went on to uh, racing brick car as well. And uh, yet another discipline that you turned your hand to quite successfully. So one, one thing about not being a very good racing driver 
Um, I'm I'm sort of not very good in in anything really in single seaters, GT cars, prototypes, or touring cars. I can I can drive to a reasonable level and, and enough to get paid to do it, um, and I seem to be able to. Uh, which is why really Brian Redman is one of my heroes. Brian could drive anything from Porsche 917s, Formula One, um, GT, whatever he got in, he did a really good job. Um, and I think it's it's a good skill to be versatile and not really be a single-seater driver or a sports car driver or whatever. So I like to think, that I'm quite versatile. So yes, I won two brick car championships in a BMW touring car, luckily with my son and Ian Lawson. Uh, my son, Anthony, is a really good little driver. Um, in fact, the last championship I won in 2016 was with Anthony in a Ferrari um, in, in brick car. Uh, and it's, it's, it is very special when you, you win something with with your boy, you know, Michael, my other son, sadly doesn't race. He'd like to, but we never had the wherewithal to uh, to help him all the way through. He did some racing, but uh, when you do win with with your son, it's very special. And you are still very much involved in motorsport now, aren't you? And I would say there are two types of racing drivers. There are those that finish their paid career and then never go near another car again. And then there are those that just can't keep away. It's in the blood. And you're the second of those, aren't you, really? Yes, I think it all boils down to that word passion again. I can't get rid of the passion I have for for the sport. Um, when, When due to health or whatever, I have to stop driving racing cars. I still have, I still have to go motor racing. Um, when I go into a, a, a circuit, I feel totally at home. It's my, it's where I want to be because I'm quite old now. I know a lot of people that are at racetracks. So uh, it takes me a long time to walk from one end of the paddock to the other because I always see people I know. Um, and it's not just the driving of racing cars for me. It's everything around it. It's meeting like-minded people. I've made some wonderful friends, um, a myriad of acquaintances that really are sort of friends. I don't see them from one year to the next, but as soon as you see them, it's as though you had a pint with them in the pub last week and it's a whole package for me i love driving racing cars but it's all the ancillaries around meeting people like your good self and doing this sort of thing is is great fun really good fun and uh, long may it continue i i'm very very lucky i'm 75 in six months time and i'm amazed that people will still say would you like to race this car, Mike? I was at Brands Hatch two weeks ago and I was testing Ron Maiden's little Ginetta, which I'm going to race at uh, Donington in a couple of weeks' time. It's a little G4. It raced at Sebring in 1964. Little twin cam engine. It's sweet as a nut and it, it flew in testing at Brands Hatch. Ron was driving one of his Formula One cars. It was David Purley's Lec CRP1 with a nice cosy in the back. And he said, oh, it doesn't feel good at the front end. So I'm sort of trying to say, well, do you think it's aero? Do you think it's chassis? And he said, would you drive it? And I thought, oh, 
to sit in a Formula One car again after so long. And about three laps in, I was absolutely on it. Absolutely. It was just, I'm sort of still buzzing two weeks later. I'm still buzzing. It was absolutely wonderful. And I don't think I'll ever lose that passion. Um, and as I say, thank God, people are still asking me, Ron, I'm racing his ill Janetta. I've done a deal with a man who's bought the Kenwood Porsche 956 that came third at Le Mans in 1983. And Reiner bought it, and I was the last person to drive it. I demonstrated at one of the Goodwood members meetings a few years ago, about four or five years ago. Uh, a lovely car run by Trevor Crisp. They've just rebuilt it, engine, gearbox, chassis, everything. And they said, if you've never driven anything like this, maybe you should talk to Mike, because I still instruct race drivers and people who want to drive on track. You should talk to him about driving a ground effect Group C car. So he phoned me. We had a meeting in London, and I thought I was going to do some instructing with him. And he said, yes, yes, I, I do want to do some instructing. He said, but would you race it with me? And then he asked how much I wanted and just, I couldn't believe it. Wonderful. So here I am again, racing a group C car, which I loved, um, did the deal. And then the pandemic came and uh, we have done nothing, but luckily the last weekend in July, we'll go to Paul Ricard and um, we'll do a Peter Auto uh, two races that weekend and then hopefully we'll go to Monza so we'll get a two or three in before the end of the year and please God he will ask me to do it next year we can still sense the passion from you Mike and it's been absolutely fantastic a real joy and a privilege for me to share it with you and to hear all of those stories from you so uh, thank you so much for joining us on the JEC podcast okay I hope I haven't bored people too much and uh, <laughs> To be honest, I could probably sit here and tell you stories for the next 10 or 11 hours. But uh, thank you very much for asking me, and I hope everybody is well and safe. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.